Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Viam Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Viam Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors, housing, and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viamcapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Versed. Well, we'd like to welcome Derek Prince, the CEO of HMG Healthcare, to our Versed podcast. Uh, Derek, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Yeah. Hey, we've known each other for a long time, and uh, we now realize we have a lot of close mutual friends and contacts and, and love of racing also. Um, but for our listeners, why don't you tell us a little about your background, uh, how you got into long-term care, and a little about HMG. Sure. Uh, so, uh, again, thanks so much uh, for having me on, on the program. Uh, long time. Uh, personal motto for me has always been take care of people going all the way back into high school, served on many um, youth service organizations. And so, so taking care of people goes all the way back for me into, into the high school years. Um, once we got past high school, getting to college, my undergraduate degree is in gerontology uh, with an emphasis in long-term care administration. So um, there's, there's several of my peers that kind of ended up or, or accidentally found uh, long-term care as a profession where, as I actually was always intending and, and wanted to be there. So um, got my degree, also uh, was a certified nursing assistant, had, had my certification, was able to get some frontline experience as, as a CNA. And then eventually went back and got my MBA to make sure I had the business background to actually run, run an organization on our own. Um, HMG, we, we, we purchased HMG um, as it was originally 10 leasehold entities based down in uh, Houston, in, in Texas. Um, that was back in 2012. I, uh, I've got two partners, Wayne Culp and Lawrence Daspot. And then uh, fast forward over the course of time uh, in, in the 10 years, we've, we've grown that to now 37 properties in Texas and in Kansas. Um, it's not just leasehold anymore. It's a blended portfolio. Um, where we own actually some of the assets in the real estate as well. So um, we'd like to say that it was slow measured growth, but if you would have asked me back in 2012, if we would ever get past, you know, 15, 18 properties, I would have said that we will never get past that. And yet we've been as large as 40. Now we're sitting at 37. So uh, maybe it wasn't as um, slow and as disciplined as I originally thought it might be. Yeah. Well, that's what incredible background you have to lead a company that size. Say a little about, you know, just having started out as a CNA. I imagine that informs you incredibly well as a leader of a company that size. Say a little about your experience and how that's made you a better leader. It sets up so many things. Um, just the perspective of a frontline um, direct care worker and my experiences at the time with, with mainly um, middle-aged African-American women, which as, as somebody from West Texas had really never experienced um, um, African-American culture. And, and, and even though, you know, coming from a single mother background, the, the stuff I was exposed to as, as, as a nursing assist CNA, it, it's, it's unparalleled. And, and it, it bases a lot of my leadership today and what we do and how we take care of not only our patient population, but how we take care of our team members is based on, on several of the stories and, and several of the experiences I had with those individuals. I mean, I, I, I talk to our team all the time about different stories that I was able to hear and been personally experienced with these ladies. And again, it, it shapes almost everything. Every day I think about some of those experiences. So it, it, it's probably 
other than my mom's influence, maybe the most sing single largest impact that I've had on the way we run, run the organization. Yeah, well, I've, I've been in enough meetings with you over the years to hear your passion as a leader and for the profession and for your love of the resident staff. And I've no doubt that has to come from all the frontline work you've done over the years. And so, um, yeah, thanks for sharing sharing that. I want to get in a little bit. You've, you you carry a, several hats, wear several hats uh, in leadership roles, not only your company, but also at the Texas Healthcare Association and also at the American Healthcare Association Board of Governors. You're the first Texan to be on the HCA board in about 20 years. So congratulations there. Maybe Thank talk you. a little bit about um, what's happening in Texas. What what are some what are some of the priorities uh, you are faced with uh, at the TXHCA and there at the Texas Legislature? Sure. Well, in Texas, it, it's no secret uh, funding is going to always be the, the biggest legislative priority that we have. Texas is no, notoriously underfunded when it comes to long-term care, and quite honestly, the Medicaid. Almost all of our Medicaid programs in Texas have been. Uh, underfunded. So our legislature meets um, every other year on odd on on odd years. So as we're preparing right now, going into session, funding is always of paramount importance. Senate hearings are occurring right now. We've already been testifying um, at those House. Uh, I've had several meetings with uh, Chairman Frank, who is the chair of appropriations on the House side. So funding is, is paramount, just like everybody else in, in, across the country, right behind funding, I would say the staffing a conundrum that we're in. I'm mm -hmm. trying to figure out how the legislature is truly for the first time, I think, understands not only in healthcare or, or long-term care that we have such a staffing crunch really across the state. And Texas has always been proud and saying we, we're a pro-business state. We, we drive a lot, uh, a lot of people that want to come to the state for various reasons. And now they're figuring out we've got a big problem with staffing. So it is getting some traction. So I would say funding and, and the staffing are the biggest priorities here in Texas right now. Yeah, I want to talk about staffing in just a minute, but say a little about your Medicaid rates so our listeners can understand it. What, what is the average daily rate for a skilled nursing facility in Texas right now? Right now, I think we're sitting at somewhere around $150 a day. Wow. Um, and according to the, to the agency's own numbers, we're, we're roughly on, on a cost basis. And these are their numbers. We're, we're $125 underfunded um, according to their recent numbers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's and in, in Texas, I will say during during COVID, <clears throat> we were very appreciative with what Governor Abbott did, and uh, it's 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 connected with the public health emergency and with the ex, with the additional FMAP monies that that the government uh, allotted to each one of the states. Governor Abbott was uh, instrumental in making sure that we we've got through the PHE. We've been receiving nineteen dollars and sixty three cents a day for all of our Medicaid population, which is really. Uh, unheard of here in Texas, that, that that was able to happen. And I think a, a lot with the, the associations work and making sure everybody understood what was going on. Um, we that, I would consider that a success. But again, a, as we go through, PHE is, is set to be extended. Looks like we got uh, notification earlier this week, uh, informally, that it's going to be extended. But once that goes away, you pull that $20 away, we go into this next session. We're going to be in a, in a really big... Uh, uh, Again, using the same word conundrum because the costs are exorbitant right now, specifically with with the staffing situation. And so, mm -hmm. we've got it. We've got a lot of work to do this session. Well, I know you and Kevin Warren are doing a tremendous job there in Texas, and what a great leader Kevin is. Uh, lead you all through these difficult times. Um, say a little bit about then the, your workforce challenges. Just being in two states, and I'd imagine being in both rural and urban markets. What are you seeing in terms of your uh, the staffing challenges in all directions there? I've never seen anything like it in in, in my entire career. I, I, I'm, I'm 
we're looking everywhere. We're not sure where all of the, of, of the workers went. We're, we're really not sure. So we're having to get somewhat creative um, with, with the recruitment and, and more so even on the retention side. We, you know, we, have, we try to break it down into two approaches. We've got a current situation and how do we solve absolute today's needs? And then how do you solve ongoing long-term? And we're very fortunate. I mean, I always looked at it going back to the direct care days, what kind of culture do you set up? And I think one of the things that everybody needs to understand, and I learned early on, whether it was growing up through the administrator, going through regional corporate structure, now being fortunate to be an, uh, an owner, initiatives only are gonna get traction if, if you have a, a C-suite or an owner who's really gonna drive that process and, and, and culture. And, and so we, we've been fortunate enough to, to put certain cultures in for our immediate needs, we, we, we've done things such as our, our employee of the years, we, we purchase a car for people. We do back to school initiatives where we buy um, everybody's school supplies for all of our direct line employees for the elementary kids. Not once they get past elementary, they get a little more choosy on those uh, <laughs> on those school supplies. So we do it for our elementary school kids. Um, we have uh, our healthcare mad genius program where we, we bought one of our facilities. I think every CNA in, in the facility has a Louis Vuitton bag because they acquired uh, above and beyond points to be able to purchase bags, uh, AirPods. So small things like that, where you're not able to necessarily go with higher wages, but there's extra add-ons and extra incentives on a cultural standpoint. We have a foundation where if somebody gets in trouble that, that, our, that our employees fund and our, our vendor partners help fund where if people run into the problems that we're able to assist them in trying times. So those type of things, we really have to make sure as we bring people on and onboard, say these are things that, that are gonna be really more germane just to HMG. These are the things that we offer you here, whereas if you're going out in, in an agency and, and really being an army of one, you may not, you may not get that support. On, on the long-term long front, we you know, it took me 10 years to, to pull it off, but we've established HMGU, where we've partnered here in, in the Houston area with uh, our community, Lone Star College, where we were able to utilize their accreditation. And so, but we're able to take our, our students, CNAs that want to get to LVN, LVNs that want to get to an RN, we use their platform, their educators, there's no out-of-pocket expense, there's no upfront tuition reimbursements, not new. But for a lot of our teams, they're not on their disposable income. They, they can't afford to put money up front to go through it. So we've got 20 students that are in various parts of HMGU working on, on getting through that we can work with their schedule, help them. We've got counselors in our organization to help them. We've got counselors dedicated to them at the school level. Um, so our first class is, uh, we started that in, in, this, in January of this year. We've got our application process out now. Um, we started down here in Houston. We're expanding to the Dallas-Fort Worth market in the fall um, for our next round in January. And so we're really pretty excited about it. And then the last part of that is that on, on a long-term plan is we, we've got, we're working on our foreign visas. We've got 15 um, individuals in the Philippines that are in various states of, of working on passing the NCLEX exam, get, passing their English exam and getting their first round of visas set up. We've got uh, an immigration attorney that we're working with getting done. And then we've also got you know, 10 to 15 Nepalese people that are here that are looking for sponsorship that we're trying to get in. So we're, we're having to attack it on all different fronts. It's, uh, again, something that I've never seen before. 
Yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing all the right things, Derek. And I know what a great leader you are and a great company you run. And that's a real tribute to you to think about not only helping people through these difficult times right now, but think about their futures and their careers as well. And, um, you know, one question I meant to ask, how many employees do you have? And then say a little bit about if you've had to rely a little more on agency staff in your markets and what that experience and challenges have been. Generally speaking, we employ, including our contract employees, we employ about 2,400 employees right now. Um, in various states, whether that, that's full-time worker, contract workers, um, it doesn't include our PRN staff. We have seen a, a massive uh, increase in utilization of staffing just from a, a dollar standpoint. Pre-COVID, we never really had to utilize agency staffing. We had a building um, that was in, in the very northern part of Kansas, where it, it's just such a rural market to try to find certain staff. It was, we just couldn't do it. So we had to utilize agency. And, and, and worst case scenario, we might have to spend $50,000 in a month. And then if you go back here into April, we spent $2 million on agency wow. in a month. In May, we spent about a million and a million five. The, the good news is, is that we're slowly starting to pull that down. When, when you look at June, it's dropped half of that again. So I think we're around 750,000 um, trending this month, well below that. So we're starting to do that. I'm not, I don't want to throw judgment on agency staffing or, or, or staffing. I mean, everybody serves a purpose. Everybody has to do something, but it, you, you know, as well as I do, if we don't have consistent staff, we don't have people, if it's just straight contract work, that, that consistency of care, that quality, it, it drops off and, and it makes me for one extremely nervous. Um, if I don't have our team in there, making sure that that true taking care of people and, and our quality is done there. So it's been challenging. I, I'm, I'm very proud of our team on working to get the, the workforce back, um, a stable workforce back in the building, obviously for cost reasons, but also for the for the care component of it. Yeah. Well, let's pivot a little bit in your role uh, on the HGA Board of Governors and you know, you stay though with, with um, kind of staffing and, and the workforce crisis. Um, say a little bit about what you think this uh, President Biden's proposal on having a national minimum staffing ratio would mean for your operations. I understand what he's saying in, in concept. And, and of course, everybody, not, none of us that are in the profession would say we don't need to have enough staff to take care of the people. Where, where I, I get a little bit jaded in that you have certain minimums, you know, we're, we're highly regulated as, as a profession to begin with. And it's my personal opinion in that staffing levels don't necessarily having a certain level of staff, just like I mentioned previously with an agency, just because I have somebody there doesn't mean they're necessarily providing quality care. And so we're already um, looked at and we're already not for lack of a better term, judged on our outcomes. I, I think that we, our, our survey processes, our five-star ratings, all of these things that are already out there, people are already coming in and is the goal to have higher staff or is the goal to have better outcomes? And I so, so just putting those out there to say that, I know in principle, it sounds great, but I don't think that that always equates to, to quality care exacerbating the problem is you start saying that, okay, two things go along with it. One, how specifically in Texas or really across the country, how do you pay for it? I understand that you want more. Well, then there has to be compensation for it. It has to be funded. And then the second part on top of that right now, you, in, in all professions, but specifically in healthcare, there truly are not. I mean, even the government will tell you at the federal level and almost all state governments will give you the delta between how many nurses, CNAs, what that shortage is in each state and then uh, collectively as a country, if the people are actually not there to put in, even as we're trying to replenish and put the plans in place, 
we're doomed before it even gets started. We couldn't hit those numbers even if we tried. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at, um, I've been following certain states that have a minimum staff ratio at the state level, states like New York, that have continued to extend out the effective date of those, of those executive orders, recognizing that the, the people just aren't there, you know. And so you hope that CMS takes notice of efforts like that at, at a certain state level as well, right? And, and to your point, I do think that CMS, more so than even the administration, has figured out through, through the communications that we've had through American Healthcare Association, I do believe that CMS is starting to get the picture like, okay, I understand. I don't think the administration is gonna back off. If you, if you have the president stating even one sentence like he did in, in the State of the Union address and, and it keeps going to this, it's gonna be very difficult to back off of these type of things um, and, and with the, the uh, advocacy groups that are out there. But I do think that there's ways to put parameters on to go, if you hit this, is it funded? If this, if there's not any workers there, it defaults away because we can't actually hit that. Um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It, it does concern me overall. But, but again, going back to what I said previously, the, the metric that I wish we would go back to is just quality outcomes. I, I, if you go to quality outcomes, how you're getting there, if you're better trained, better efficient, having the certain things in there and the quality outcomes are there, having a specific number of staff to me seems to be irrelevant. Are you getting the care done and is it being done appropriately? Yeah. Well, let's pivot a little bit on the payment side on the national level. Um, I know CMS came out with uh, uh, a proposed rule uh, that would uh, ultimately re result in about a 4.6% Medicare cut at the end of the day. Um, and I know HCA led the charge on getting as many comments as possible through the public uh, comment period, which I think resulted in over seven or 8,000 individual comments. Say a little about what you think that could mean for your operations and what the expected hopeful outcome could be. Maybe the, the CMS would look to phase that in over a couple of years. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the, the association and the stakeholders and the comments that were submitted to, to CMS over that was, was amazing. It goes to show um, the effectiveness of Mark Parkinson and, and American Healthcare Association on how they're able to get the shareholders to, to get their points across. You know, we all knew anytime you change, it's been a while since we've had a payment uh, system and we know with budget neutrality, it, it, it always throws a kink in it. Um, so at, we, we knew at some point it was gonna happen and then COVID hit in the middle of it and everybody understood there's no way in the midst of this, this situation that we can do anything with a payment. So that, that we've been kicking this can down the road for, for several years. You know, I'm a realist and I understand that there's, there's not an unlimited money supply chain when it comes to things and we are dependent on taxpayer dollars and it has to be funded. So I, I do recognize that we have to look at that and go, yes, if it has to be budget, are they going to take it back? It's just very unfortunate on the timing with escalating costs, everything going the way that staffing in particular. I'm very hopeful that we get the phase in of the three years if they take the 4.6 back all in one lump sum. We'll, we'll have to deal with it at the time, but it's just very unfortunate on the time and it couldn't come at a worse time. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts. And, and again, I know you're, you, uh, through your roles there in Texas and at the national level, are doing a tremendous job on the advocacy front. So thanks for all the work you're doing. Um, you know, kind of just a couple last questions. Uh, I know you, like me, are an optimist and, and uh, curious to see what you think about the future of the sector, if there's some reason for optimism, despite sort of this, this low point that we're facing on workforce reimbursement and regulatory issues. Absolutely. Well, I think you always have to be an honor. If you're a take care of people person and you're wanting to do that, I think you always have to look at the glass half full and 
and you have to have optimism. Otherwise, why would we be doing this in the, in the first place? So um, I, I think there are some encouraging signs. You're, you're always going to have problems. You're always going to have, depend, regardless of the administration, regardless of what state you live in. It's a very difficult profession. So we're always going to have this. But as I look to see what is happening, you know, we, we, we continue to see the demographics that they keep moving back. And ever since even I was in high school and now I'm 52 years old, we've been talking about the baby boomers aging and it's going to happen this time. It's going to happen at this time. And so with the, with the advances in healthcare technology, that number continues to get pushed back. But I think with that being said, the demographics for as people continue to age, we're, we're hitting to the point where people are truly going to be utilizing what the services that we have. And there's, there's a myriad of options. We see people with home health and home options. And, and of course, I certainly understand that. I own and operate nursing homes, been in them my entire career, even, even prior to having a career, I, I, I was in nursing homes volunteering and doing things. But with that being said, I don't want to be in a nursing home. I, no, nobody wants to be there. But if I need care in a nursing home, then I want a provider like myself to actually take care of people. So I think we're still the method of providing that care to our aging um, population. And, and from a government standpoint, I think we're able to do it in the most cost-effective way. Given everything that's out there, I've looked seven ways to Sunday, I've done tremendous due diligence on what the costs are. And, and we do it, we get the best outcomes with the least amount of cost. And so that part of it, again, I'm like, we, we're gonna have, we will be part of the solution. It's, it's, it's a necessity and, and nobody else knows how to do it like we do. So. I do think that, that that's the case. And, and, I, and I think as we continue forward, I think we're gonna be able to get more people that, that wanna do this, that, that have that take care of people mentality. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts, Derek. I mean, I, I get so inspired in these conversations on the Reverse Podcast because I get to speak to amazing leaders like yourself. And I'm so thankful that you're out there doing the work you're doing because I think about the future sector and so glad that you are out there. Um, you know, I think we all learned uh, that one of the one of the positive things that came out of COVID, or so we're dealing with COVID certainly, is just the sheer grit of the sector, the leaders, the staff, the family members, the residents. I mean, this has been an incredibly difficult time. And people are still out there fighting hard to make sure we're providing high quality care. And you're, you're at the top of the list. So Derek, can't thank enough for what you do. Um, one last question. I just kind of have a, a fun question for all of our uh, guests. Is there a book you're reading right now you'd love to recommend to our, uh, our listeners? Kind of what's on your nightstand or, or something you'd like to hand out to your families or friends? Yeah, well, I don't know that I would recommend it. I'm, I'm a big historian buff and my, my uncle's in healthcare. Uh, he just recently retired and upon retiring, he gave me a collection of books, um, a, a series of books by uh, Robert Caro on, on the times, the years of uh, Lyndon Johnson. And there's four different books and I'm trying to read those books. I'm in, uh, I'm in the Ascent book right now. And, and the reason he did it, he knows that he, he and I had a conversation and you know, which presidents, you know, what do you think is your favorite president? You know, he, he's a buff like I am. And, and when I mentioned to him, you know, there's there's the obvious choices, right? You know, George Washington and Abe Lincoln and these these things, or maybe T.R. You know, the the real popular ones. But I told him, I said, but honestly, I think L.B.J. is one that has more impact. And he says, funny you mention that. I, I tend to agree with you, especially because we're in healthcare, given everything that we depend on with Medicaid and what he was able to do from from that standpoint standpoint and taking care of people. So in reading about him. And, and the way he did it, and he's such a masterful politician, plus he's obviously a Texan, and 
So I'm, I'm getting into that. I don't know that everybody would, would find it as entertaining as I am. So I'm, I, that's what I'm reading currently. Um, <laughs> just FYI. Well, I think that I think in these times, it's always important to kind of look back to leadership in the past, right, to help us get through these difficult times. And uh, I recently picked up Profiles in Courage again. I've, I've read it several times, and I think it's, it's always kind of interesting and fun to think back at difficult times of our country's history where people have risen up and, and made some really difficult decisions. So thanks for sharing some, some thoughts there. And, and Derek, thanks for being on our, our Verse podcast today. It really means a lot to us and our team here that you've spent some time with us and talked a little bit about what's on your, uh, on your plate and, and your optimism for the future. So thank you so much for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it.